It's the 21st of January, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Today, we'll talk about a lot of interesting reports, journal articles, and whatnot, but we're going to end with belief. It may be your single greatest clinical tool. Which patient characteristics do you rely on to inform your choice of treatment? An exploratory study that looked at Orenzia, Abitacept, and a TNF inhibitor may provide some insights. Don't treat in the dark. Visit orenziadata.com. So let's begin with maybe the end of COVID. The numbers are pretty staggering. Uh, this week, the CDC came out with an update to numbers. As of that last report that they had, 6.7 million COVID cases, over 851,000 deaths from COVID-19. Uh, currently in the United States, they have the vaccine count at 249.4 million or 75% of the population have received at least one COVID vaccine dose. And that's 63% or 209 million have been fully vaccinated, yet only 38.7% have received a booster. I don't know if you saw Eric Topol's tweet this past week about where the United States stands as far as all the countries and receipt of that third booster dose. Yeah, worldwide, we're dead last. It's just like bad, shocking, embarrassing. Um, so, and there are a lot of reasons for it. It has a lot to do probably with the confusion in which the third dose was rolled out here in the United States. Nonetheless, JAMA Network reports this week that um, between December 20 and July 21st, um, that's really what, you know, the first seven, eight months of the vaccine being available, um, there's an estimated number of lives saved, 241,000 lives were saved in that six months period. Um, it prevented 1.1 million hospitalizations and is said to have prevented nearly 14 million cases of COVID infection. And that's just, again, in the first seven months of use. So, you know, we have the tools. We are making progress. The numbers are staggering. Right now we're in this Omicron thing, and it looks like we're on the downside of that surge, especially in the Northeast United States. The rest of the country will catch up hopefully in the next two to three weeks. But vigilance is what we need. Vigilance, it applies to a lot of things we treat. How about lupus? You know, what's your goal in lupus? My goal is remission. And that, of course, means I don't usually do a measure like a SLEDI or an LLDAS in my practice or taking care of patients. Uh, I do, you know, what you do. And that is I look at serologies. I look at their labs. I don't want to see active rash, active arthritis, active organ involvement. And then I say they're remission. Well, a lupus meta-analysis looked at 41 studies, 17,000 patients, to look at the frequency of remission reported in the, in the literature. Um, and I guess they went with pretty high bar, remission being maintained for one year. Now, I don't know about you, but when I saw that number, I thought, hmm, that's kind of interesting. I probably have a lot of patients like that, but one year is hard. 
because um, we tend to remember all the patients we don't have in remission in lupus, do we not? Well, this meta-analysis says 42 to 88% of those studies said they could maintain remission for one year. Maintaining remission for five years, it's 21 to 70%. What's the real number? Somewhere probably in between. Nonetheless, remission is associated with an older age at diagnosis. Older onset lupus is generally easier to treat is it, if it is in fact really lupus, you know, maybe ANA positivity and aches and pains for all I know. Um, overall lower disease activity, we see patients who have lower disease activity are more likely to achieve remission, meaning they have a shorter way to go and no, or, no major organ involvement. What they did show in this review was that achieving remission was associated with less damage. Hence remission should be the goal. Um, a nice, I think, report, uh, it's more of a think piece, I think, by Ron van Volenhoven and, and his colleagues uh, in the Netherlands looked at uh, really where we are in using treat to target in the management of lupus. He feels that, you know, it's time has come. And, and he points out really four or five good reasons as to why that's the case. One, um, we can choose a target, we can monitor, and we can adjust. That is the principle of treat to target. Know your target, monitor, adjust to achieve the target. Two, the newer tools that are used in clinical trials, the LLDAS definition of, of Lodi's activity state um, and the Doris remission criteria are good targets and should be used in clinical trials. Should they be used in practice? Well, not unless you're a lupus maven, I would say. Um, three, the treat-to-target trials um, are really needed, and they should be done not only with, you know, the newer drugs, which are exciting uh, and offer a significant promise for better outcomes in lupus, but also with historic drugs, so that we know how we can better achieve that target of remission. Um, and lastly, uh, again, I think I already said this, LLDAS and DORIS need to be the clinical trial outcomes um, and hence with that on board, we can get reliable data that can be extended to practice. So I think it's a nice article worth a read. Um, UCB announced uh, some top line results of its uh, clinical trials with bimikizumab, the dual IL-17 inhibitor. It targets IL-17A and IL-17F. Uh, it's the phase three B-mobile one study. Uh, and in that study, again, these are top line results. They don't give you the actual data or the numbers or the, the frequency of side effects, but you know, they're teasing us. But bimikizumab is potentially a new um, player in um, the IL-17 targeted disease states, which would include psoriatic disease and spondyloarthritis. Um, again, their studies done, this, what's interesting about this study is that it was done in adults with active non-radiographic axial spa. So this would be added to the two or three that are currently approved, should they actually go for this approval? Uh, we'll have to wait and see. The results will come out with the data, with the numbers at either a large meeting or you'll see it in print sometime soon. Um, arthritis Research and Therapy has a nice report by Dennis McGonigal and Ellen Gravelisi and colleagues. They looked at this SKG mouse model it's an adjuvant mouse model where they can induce uh, spondyloarthritis-like disease and enthesitis. And what they did in their experiments was they actually showed that neutrophils play an important role in the pathogenesis. 
in this mouse model. That neutrophils, um, uh, after induction with the adjuvant, there's a lot of neutrophils. There's inducible IL-23, another player in spondyloarthritis. They all um, exert important effects in early murine spondyloarthritis and related enthesitis. I think this is important because I don't think we um, target or pay enough attention to neutrophils. Neutrophils are part of that final common pathway to damage. Um, it is an amplifying uh, player in these disease states. Sometimes it may be a proximal um, um, uh, pathogenic uh, loop, if you will, uh, in, in these disease states. So I think we're gonna have to pay attention to neutrophils uh, in the future. I wouldn't be surprised if we see that in spondyloarthritis and other diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, speaking of rheumatoid arthritis, you know the test for rheumatoid arthritis, the test that you tell your primary care doctors to do to figure out when to refer to you or, or not. And it's called the squeeze test, the MCP squeeze test, the MTP squeeze test. That's all, um, I think, well-founded um, uh, gu guidance that you can provide to your primary care colleagues. Um, there was a study that looked at the um, what's going on in patients with early arthritis uh, and, um, and patients with arthralgia and what happens when you do an MTP squeeze test. They looked at those patients, they all, they did, everyone got the squeeze, everyone got an MRI to see exactly what tissues were involved with a positive MTP squeeze test. So 192 early arthritis patients, 693 early arthralgia patients underwent the test. Turns out that what's usually involved in a positive squeeze test is synovitis and intertarsal bursitis. Um, if patients were MTP, MTP squeeze test positive, 79% um, had um, synovitis or intermetatarsal bursitis. This is from the early arthritis group. Um, and then 15% had uh, uh, just IMB and 52% had both. So when you get that test, it could be bursitis, it could be synovitis. Uh, it still has important utility and you should be advocating that with your, with your colleagues. Another um, very interesting approval from the FDA this week. The FDA approved two new JAK inhibitors, well, one old, one new, for atopic dermatitis. Do we really care? Well, I used to call it eczema, but it's called atopic dermatitis. And uh, upadacitinib uh, was approved and Pfizer's new JAK inhibitor, selected JAK1 called abrocitinib or Simbinco or Quo or something like that, uh, both approved for atopic dermatitis. Why do I bring this up? Well, you know, they were approved at both doses, 15 and 30 for the Rinvoke and what's it, 100 and 200 for the abrocitinib, Simbingo, whatever it is. You know, I've been saying all along, the FDA is not going to approve two doses, a lower dose and a higher dose of a JAK inhibitor, because usually there isn't much benefit to the higher dose over the lower dose, and there usually is more toxicity. Well, that didn't happen here, meaning there must have been more benefit and no added toxicity. Nonetheless, both of these are going to get slapped with the same warnings um, uh, about, you know, cardiovascular, blah, 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 blah. So um, look for that in your dermatology offices nearby you. Uh, a report from Jane Room um, I thought was interesting because it sort of called out rheumatologists at not being very good at hepatitis testing in uh, situations where they use 
uh, tofacitinib or tocilizumab. Both drugs, as you know, do cause liver toxicity, LFTs mostly. Um, um, and so the question is, you know, can you have reactivation with these drugs? You can have reactivation hepatitis with pretty much all of our drugs. And they have been reported with both of those drugs. Um, and the article said that um, the number of patients who had partial screening, not full screening for hep B and hep C, I would think that's a hep C antibody, hep B surface antigen, uh, hep B core antibody, hep B surface antibody would be my full screening. Um, partial screening only done 45 to 50%. No screening done in 25, 26%. What's going on here? They point out that the, the CDC recommends that these patients on these drugs get such screening. So does the, the AASLD. I assume that's some sort of liver society. And the package insert also measures it. Interestingly, the ACR guidelines for RA care uh, and the use of those drugs do not necessarily um, recommend that. Um, I think rheumatologists are pretty good at doing hep B screening, but are you doing it when you get around to this maybe third line, fourth line therapy. So certainly you do it when you start a DMAR, you know, whether especially methotrexate or, and, and leflumide. Um, do you do it with a TNF inhibitor? Do you do it when you start, you know, a, a JAK inhibitor? I think the rule of thumb is you probably should be doing it with the start of any new um, MOA, at least. Um, think about it. Uh, David Felsen and his colleagues have a report, I believe it's in, in um, JAMA. Uh, it's about, actually, it's a, I think it's ARD. Look it up. Uh, it's about whether or not intraarticular steroids cause progression of knee OA. So there's the, 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 the hypothesis here is that there's literature out there that says that patients with knee OA who receive intraarticular steroids are at risk significant risk for progression of the disease. It's not as bad as you might have with a nerve growth factor inhibitor where we saw that. Um, but there's that information is out there. I've heard orthopedists say it. So um, what they did was they did a study and they compared head to head the uh, intraarticular steroids versus intraarticular hyaluronic acid. Now hyaluronic acid has never been um, uh, implicated as causing progression. And there's some evidence I think it's kind of weak, that it may prevent the need for future knee replacement therapy. Knee replacement, not therapy. Um, so in this study, 791 patients received uh, intraarticular glucocorticoids uh, to 690, wait, oh no, 791 total, total number, 629 got steroids, uh, 162 got hyaluronic acid, the outcomes were the same between groups. We're talking about joint space narrowing, um, X-ray changes, Kelgren Lawrence uh, 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 grade uh, changes were basically the same. There was a slight but not a uh, lowering of the need for knee replacement, but it's not significant in the glucocorticoid use. That's a lowering, not an increase in the need for. So, and again, the, the hazard ratio is 0.75, but the confidence intervals crossed over one. So I think that they've sort of added to the body of literature that you can safely give corticosteroids intraarticularly without worrying about the progression of disease. Uh, the CDC and the ACIP came up with and published the guidance uh, that says that our patients who are immunocompromised and immunosuppressed can safely receive 
the current um, um, recombinant zoster vaccine, which we know to be Shing Shingrix. As you know, the older live virus vaccines, Zostavax is no longer on the market. Shingrix has taken over the market. And, uh, but our patients were never studied. The, you know, they had over 30,000 patients that were tested in the drug development. And they were like normal old people uh, over the age 50, over the age of 70. That's the Zoe 50, Zoe 70 trials. And the re results were great. You know, 90 plus percent, you know, protection and protection or oh, 90 plus protection against the complications of, um, of, of shingles like, like a posterpedic neuralgia and that sort of thing. And they came out and said, you know what, it's, um, uh, and what they did was they, the, the ACIP had a special committee and they monitored from the time the drug was approved in 2017 to 2021, they did a grade evidence, a grade sort of based evidence analysis to see, to look at its efficacy and safety. And basically it looked good with efficacy, vaccine efficacy numbers that paralleled um, what you see in normals, although it's a little bit less than one of the three or four trials that looked at it. When it looked at safety, the, the, the safety looked good. The report that's in room now actually puts down some um, clinical guidance on the use of, of the recombinant zoster vaccine or Shingrix. The dosing schedule, as you know, it's two doses, the second dose being given um, between two and six months after the first dose. Um, and this is again in immunosuppressed uh, and uh, immunodeficient individuals. Uh, and if it's given before that, you need to wait a few months and then give an, another dose later, meaning that they need at least two months to get the effect. to receive one dose are going to be protected, not at the 90% level, but maybe at about the 65 uh, or so level. And geez, does, not, does that not sound like the COVID vaccine story with the two mRNA vaccines? The timing of the vaccination, uh, vaccination is that it should be given um, as soon as possible, but mainly before the patient's immunosuppressed. So if you think you're going to induce immunosuppression like you would if you were giving chemotherapy, or like if you were going to give rituximab, you would want to give this prior to the immunosuppression. Um, in patients, or in, in your case, it's your patients being well-controlled, because if they're well-controlled and not inflamed, they're less immunosuppressed, so to speak. So um, again, this is not a live virus vaccine. You need to know about that. Co-administration with other vaccines. Yes, you can give it with other vaccines, with other vaccines getting shots at different sites. Otherwise, it's, uh, that's okay. And that you should counsel patients about reactogenicity, meaning what kind of side effects. You want to find out the patients who have severe reactions and maybe develop a strategy for them going forward. There's some, there's some others guidance in here about special populations that if you had prior herpes zoster, you can get it again. And yes, you should be vaccinated. That if you've had no documented history of varicella, varicella vaccination, or herpes zoster, um, you can still get this um, in the United States. More than 99% of Americans have evidence of prior exposure to varicella and, uh, and or herpes zoster. Um, there is no recommendations uh, regard its, with regard to its use in pregnancy. So that should be kept in mind. And there really are no uh, major contraindications that we can uh, point to in this case. So I think we are already doing a lot of this. Uh, 
Lisa Stamp had a nice article in Lancet Rheumatology about do does achieving treat the target goals lead to less gouty flares? It seems like a duh question, but you know she's added to the evidence that argues against the American College of Physicians who failed to put T2T in its guidelines in the treatment of gout. Again, we all think they must be idiots, right? Well, she did the study. The study was done in um, a large number of patients, two different trials, in fact, of urate lowering therapy. Um, and when they looked at the responders, those who achieved a, uh, a serum uric acid less than six versus non-responders, those who did not, uh, they looked at the outcomes of 12 and 24 months and they were both the same in that there was significant protection against gouty um, uh, attacks, gouty flares. The interesting thing about this study is that, that of their 600 plus patients, about half of their, their patients were responders and half of them were non-responders, meaning in a study designed to have dose escalations and whatnot, um, achieving target was only done at 50%. And then in fact, if you look at most of the trials, you may think that you're a treat-to-target rheumatologist, but the data says only about 40% of people get there. In their study, it was 50%. But if you were, the chance of a, of a flare in the next 12 months was 27% on, if you were within target or 64% if you were not. So uh, more than double, almost three times the amount. I want to make a pitch for Room Now Live, March 19th and 20th. Be there live in person in um, Las Colinas, Irving, Texas. We got a great meeting, um, great hotel venue, uh, or be there online. It's going to be 13.75 hours of CME. You can go and register now. A lot of registrations. I must have said something right last week. I want to end with a story about a patient I saw this week, a 33-year-old gal. I've seen her now a few times. She's morbidly obese, Had um, came to me with rheumatoid arthritis when in fact she really had polyarticular JIA at age 10 and was treated uh, with multiple DMARDs and multiple biologics over the next 30 plus years. Um, when I saw her earlier this year, she was on methotrexate um, at a high dose, 20 milligram prednisone, 25 milligrams a day and um, no analgesic therapies. She was on folic acid and she had widespread pain and no synovitis, no synovitis. So either she's remarkably doing well, she said she wasn't, she was miserable with pain, you know, on a zero to 10 scale, she was a 43. And, um, and it turns out that all her pain was not from her JIA, it was from the damage her JIA in, in, in caused. And now she has pretty much end stage hips that they're gonna need surgery if she wants to get rid of that pain. She's got malignant fibromyalgia. That's a big problem. So deformities, contractures, damage, and disability are her story. And it's not active RA or JIA. It's the residua of all those. And of course, it's all amplified by fibromyalgia and horrible sleep. I spent the last few visits stopping her methotrexate, done. Starting analgesics, done. Weaning her prednisone, no chance. You know, she was at 25, she's down to 10. She refuses to go off prednisone because she says, doc, it's the only drug that gives me any relief. And I don't understand that because her pain's always 43 out of 10, but she's married to it. Not surprising since she started prednisone when she was a kid. Uh, and we know that's really hard to stop. So 
moreover, she's been prescribed a lot of other medicines, things to help her sleep and things to help her blood pressure. And she's not taking them for money reasons and non-compliance reasons. And she's just frustrated. So she needs surgery for her destroyed hips. You know, um, she needs to lose 150 pounds. She needs a sleep study, a sleep doctor, a sleep aid, you know, and then she'll do better. But is any of that going to happen? You know, she pretty much flat out told me, not going to happen, doc. She's got no money. She's got no insurance. You know, I'm seeing her in, 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 a, um, in a sort of free clinic. And we have resources to help her. But she doesn't believe that she's helpable. She just wants prednisone. She wants me to treat her with the next biologic, thinking that might could be her ticket. And uh, again, none of this is going to happen because she doesn't believe it's possible. So, you know, often we are in these situations and it's our job to tell a patient, you need hip surgery, you need to lose weight, you need to get a sleep study, you need to be on sleep medicines, you'll do better, and we're done. Well, that's never going to happen because she just told you it's not going to happen for a lot of different reasons. She doesn't believe it. She doesn't believe that she can get better. She doesn't believe what you're telling her, which means she doesn't believe you. So she's got to believe in you for any of this to happen. Then she may be able to believe in herself. She may be able to actually see a future where she is different, better, happier, more functional. But this all goes back to you, not the drugs, not the plan that you mapped out and put in the chart. It goes back to you because she's not on board and she's not getting on board until she believes. So how do you do that? Well, I think the only thing we can do, aside from repeat the prescription, is show you care. You got to give her the goals, hope, and rules, and the encouragement she needs to say it, it could happen. This is a bleak story, but if you don't change her course, who will? I think it, for me, next week, uh, in sort of like 10 days after I last saw her, I'm going to call her and say, how you doing? Did you try anything I, I, I wanted to do with you? Did you call to get into that other free clinic where you can see an orthopedist? You know, did you do the sleep medicine? Did you do the, you know, what's your plan to lose weight? Let's talk about that again. You know, and so again, it begins with and ends with you. Hope, goals, and rules are what you say to them that makes them believe. That's it for this week on the podcast. Tune in next week for more Room Now Good News. While there is great hope that an understanding of biomarkers will benefit rheumatoid arthritis patient management, there are but a few biomarkers shown to be both diagnostic and prognostic. Researchers have suggested that RA patients who test positive for specific autoantibodies may express higher disease activity, which could impact treatment strategies, but most practitioners generally use these results only for diagnostic purposes. Bristol-Myers Squibb is investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population, patients who tested positive for these antibodies, which together are associated with higher disease activity. Rheumatologists may want to consider these biomarker-driven results when considering treatment options. To learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.